You know, this morning we're finishing up our Christmas series that we started at the beginning of December, and we've been calling it The Light of the World. You know, the reason that we've called this series The Light of the World is because of the main text that we've been studying from all this month in Isaiah 9, 1 to 7. Verse 2 says that the people who walk in darkness, they will see a great light. And those who live in the dark land, the light will shine upon them. Now, in the context of that passage, we really come to understand that the light that shines into the dark world is actually the prophecy which we've been studying in verse 6 where it says, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The Gospel of John in chapter 1 actually calls Jesus the light and the life of men, and then in chapter 3, verse 19 of the Gospel of John, Jesus says that he is the light that has come into the world. So this wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the eternal Father, the Prince of Peace, is the light that has come into the world that has shone into the darkness. His dawning into this dark world is what we celebrate at Christmas time. Now we've studied three of the four titles in Isaiah 9-6, which just leaves the fourth title for us this morning, which is the Prince of Peace. So what we're going to do with the remainder of our time is we're looking at three truths that are going to help us rejoice in this gift of peace that only comes through the Prince of Peace. Now, in order to do that, though, part of the task this morning is really asking the question, what is peace according to the Bible? Okay, that's a really important question to ask that we actually come to understand what peace is according to the Bible, because the Bible's definition of peace is probably very different from the world's. In fact, I'll go so far as to say it is much different than the world's definition of peace. A verse that we'll look at later this morning, um, but just highlights this very, very simply, is Jesus says in John 14, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, but not as the world gives do I give to you. So it's very different than what the world has to offer. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. You see, the world has a kind of peace. It has an idea of peace, but it is not what God would call peace. And if we want to follow Christ, then we actually need to know what Jesus says about peace. If we're going to pursue peace and we're going to obey God's commandments as Christians to pursue peace, we need to know what it is. For example, Hebrews 12 is pretty clear that we are to pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Now, that verse seems to make it pretty plain that if you want to see God, if you want to be in heaven, then you must pursue peace with all men. Or similarly, Romans twelve eighteen says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Again, pretty clear that pursuing peace is commanded of by believers. And then, of course, you have Jesus' own words in the Sermon on the Mount where he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, the implication for that verse, again, seems pretty clear, like Hebrews twelve fourteen, that those who make peace are genuine believers. So to be a Christian really does mean to pursue peace. So understanding what pursuing peace is, what that peace is, actually is, is going to be rather critical for us to do what we're commanded to do. So hopefully, at least with those verses, I've sufficiently kind of piqued your interest into understanding what peace is according to the Bible. 
Okay, now on the surface, it really may seem like a rather mundane or boring endeavor going, well, I I think I know what peace is. But I I really want to encourage you to, to think about this. I don't want people walking away this morning with some blank filled in on their notes that said, well, this is what Pastor Greg said that peace was, right? We really want to know what the Bible says peace is. We want to know what God says full-orbed peace is according to Scripture. Okay, so the first aspect that I'm hoping we're going to see from Scripture is that peace is between men, right? It's the end of conflict between people and groups. Okay, now a very simple verse that I think illustrates this pretty quickly is Deuteronomy 20 verse 10 where it says when you approach a city to fight against it well you shall offer it terms of peace right so what is the what is peace in this peace is really the alternative to war right it's the alternative to fighting and conflict or you see like in Psalm 120 6 to 7 too long has my soul uh, had its dwelling with those who hate peace I'm for peace but when I speak they're for war Again, you see the same thing in the passage. The psalmist wants peace. He doesn't want to fight with people, doesn't want conflict, but the people around him, they want conflict, they want to fight, they want war. So the end of conflict between people, that, that is one kind of peace, and I think a peace that we all would long for, but the Bible also goes further and says that there is a peace between man and nature, right? The end of conflict with nature, Isaiah 11 talks about it, where it says, The wolf will dwell with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the young goat. The calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. Also, the cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and a weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I mean, can you imagine that kind of peace, right, where nothing in nature hurts or destroys anymore? I mean, for those of us who have really, really light, pale skin, like my wife, well, and, and myself, I suppose, right? Can you imagine what it will be like not to be at war with the sun anymore? You won't have to put on liquid armor of SPF 1000 not to get cooked. Or you think about Ezekiel thirty four twenty five, where it says, I will make a covenant of peace with them. This is the Lord speaking. You go, well, what's that covenant of peace going to be like? I will eliminate harmful beasts from the land so that they may live securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. Now, I don't know when people actually like seriously started proposing this, but you may have heard about proposals to reintroduce introduce wolves back into nature. Colorado has already recently begun doing that, and it's funny to hear about because one of the challenges that they say of reintroducing wolves back into nature is the potential of wolf-human conflict. That's their words, right? And you go, well, that, that makes sense. So instead of enjoying wolves in places like, you know, uh, Wolf Park or at a zoo where you're safely on the other side of a fence, they want to put them back into the wilderness, right? Back into the woods, It's kind of ironic because decades ago, there were all sorts of government programs to eliminate wolves and to eliminate these, I would say, harmful beasts, according to Ezekiel 34. Now, for the most part, we live pretty securely where we're at. We're not too concerned about going into the woods and being torn to shreds or having our children torn to shreds by an animal. 
but we still deal with all kinds of things in nature that are against us, like ticks and poison ivy, mosquitoes, harsh weather, weather, splinters. (laughs) Isaiah 55 says this, for you will go out with joy and be led forth with peace. You go, well, what's that peace going to be like? Instead of the thorn bush, which many of you probably fight thorn bushes on your property, instead of the thorn bush, the cypress will come up. Instead of the nettle, the myrtle will come up. Right? You see, even the conflict with your skin and nature will be over. Right? So part of a full-orbed understanding of peace, according to the Bible, is not just the end of conflict between people. It's actually the end of conflict between you and nature. Now, I want you to really think about it. You go, well, what, if, what if everything between you and people is good and everything in, uh, with you and nature is finally at peace? Does that mean that we'll finally be at peace? I mean, just imagine what it'd be like to have no conflict between you and your spouse. I mean, you agree about everything. You and your kids are in perfect harmony about bedtimes, right? Mealtimes are actually for eating, and you all love the same foods, There isn't any frustration or problem at work. There's no problems at school anymore. The weather is perfect. There's no mud outside. There isn't any physical pain because gravity's not weighing you down. Right? No allergic reactions to food or particles in the air. So essentially, of everything external which is at peace, does that actually get us to the place where you go, we would finally be at peace? Yeah, I think initially we might say, well, yeah, that, that would get us there. But I really don't think it's that hard to prove that even if everything external was at peace, that we still have a big problem, and there's a big internal problem within ourselves. And so one of the dominant ways that the Bible talks about peace is peace within ourselves. It's the ending of the conflict inside of us. Now, if you're looking to do some reading over Christmas break, or you're looking to fill out your 2024 reading schedule, man, I, I'd encourage you to consider a book called 12 Ways Your Phone is Changing You. It's a very easy read, very insightful. We have it in, in our resource center, and, and I think that would be extremely beneficial to your relationship with the Lord if you really seriously considered a book like that. But in the very first chapter, which is titled Addicted to Distractions, The author, Tony Ranke, says this about digital distractions. He says, we use digital distractions to keep thoughts of eternity away. Perhaps most subtly, we find it easy to fall into the trap of digital distractions because in the most alluring new apps, we find a welcome escape from our truest, rawest, and most honest self-perceptions. This was the insight of the 17th century Christian mathematician and proverb-making sage Blaise Pascal. When when observing distracted souls of his own day, not unlike those of our time, he noticed that if you take away their diversions, you will see them dried up with weariness because it is to be ushered into unhappiness as soon as we are reduced to thinking of self and have no diversion. He goes on to quote Pascal again saying, I've discovered that all the unhappiness of men arises from one single fact that people, that men cannot stay quietly in their own chamber. Now here's the point. Conflicts with people, they certainly destroy peace. The conflicts with nature destroy peace, but there's even a deeper level of conflict that comes from within our own souls. I'm sure we can all give testimony to the anxiety 
to the shame, guilt, confusion, turmoil, indecision, regret, and panic that is within us oftentimes. It's not due to someone trying to kill us. It's not due even to people who don't like us. It's not due to health all the time. It's not due to being afraid of a snake bite or anything like that. It's what Pascal was describing, that all unhappiness of men arises from one single fact, that they cannot stay quietly in their own chamber. Right? The conflict is actually inside of us. Now, praise the Lord that according to the Bible... Peace within ourselves is part of the full-orbed biblical reality of peace. So Isaiah 26.3 says, the steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. Or John 14.27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, but not as the world gives do I give. Do not let your hearts be troubled, nor let it be fearful. So Jesus, the prophesied Prince of Peace, according to Isaiah 9-6, he gives peace to us, but it's not like the world, and it is an internal peace where we can actually have hearts that aren't afraid, that aren't troubled, that can finally be at rest. So just to recap what we've seen from Scripture so far, peace involves the end of conflict between people. Right? So in your family, your workplace, your neighborhood, your nation, the world, like full orb peace means the end of conflict between people. Then there's also the absence of conflict between nature. So no more disease, no more tornadoes, earthquakes, anything in nature that would bring about death. And then finally, you have the absence of conflict within your own heart, within your own mind, guilt-free, shame-free, regret-free, anxiety-free, Right, that would be perfect peace. Now, that kind of full-orb definition of peace is why theologians have tried to define the word peace, the Hebrew word shalom in the Old Testament, as human flourishing and well-being. Some of your, some of your versions will, def- will translate shalom as well-being because they're trying to get across that it is more than just simple happiness, which I think is how many, many people would define peace. I mean, the kind of peace that the Prince of Peace speaks of is so big and so amazing that it goes so far beyond just simple happiness. I mean, Isaiah 9-7, which we're still waiting for the complete fulfillment of, right, says there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore, and the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So, I mean, the breadth of peace, it reaches across all creation, right? Not even just like the earth, all creation. Then as far as the breadth, it also reaches across all time. So there's no threatening of this peace ever again. Now, I don't know about you, but it it is hard to wrap your mind around that kind of peace, right? To imagine that kind of reality of peace, it is so hard to imagine because it's everywhere that you look, it's conflict, and it's war, and it's unrest, and it's lawsuits, and it's divorces, and sicknesses, and funerals, and just brokenness everywhere. So that really does beg the question, why is the world so engulfed in conflict every single place that you look? Now, praise the Lord, Scripture clearly answers that question as well. And so the second truth to help us rejoice in this gift of peace that the Prince of Peace gives us is to acknowledge, it's a weird thing to actually rejoice in, but to actually acknowledge that all of our conflict comes from our war with God. 
Now, fairly certain that there are people that are here this morning that that might be a very, they may have never heard anything like that before. The idea of you and I being at war with God, right, that, kind of, that might sound jolting, and quite frankly, it, it should be jolting to be at war with the Creator, but I want to encourage you to hear the words of Scripture and really let them do their work on your heart and mind. According to Scripture, sin brought conflict with God. Isaiah 59.2 says, But your iniquities, your sins, they have made separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. I mean, that verse is very, very clear. It's not just sin outside of us that causes a problem with God. That It's our own personal sin. It's a sin that comes from within us that brings our conflict with God. This conflict with God is as old as sin itself. I mean, you're probably very familiar with the, with the story of Adam and Eve when they disobeyed God and ate of the tree which they were commanded not to eat. As soon as they ate of that tree which they were commanded not to eat, Genesis 3, 8 tells us, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife, they hid themselves from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. I mean, why did they run from God? It's because the peace of God was broken, and now instead of a sweet relationship without conflict, now there is war, there is conflict between them and God. They used to walk with God and delight in his presence, but as soon as they disobeyed, just like Isaiah 59.2 said, their iniquities made separation between them and God. Because of that conflict with God, out of that conflict comes every other conflict, That conflict with God, that sin, it brought conflict into their own souls. Genesis 3, 7, it says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloths. I mean, it's, it's stunning how quickly everything snapped. Immediately upon disobeying God, internally, the peace they enjoyed was destroyed, and they rushed to cover themselves up with fig leaves. They covered their guilt and their shame with external coverings. God asked them in Genesis 3.11, well, who told you that you were naked? It's kind of an interesting question because it's not like it was a secret that they didn't have clothes on. But the point is that they were so free from any hint or thought of self-consciousness because who God made them to be and who they were was in such perfect harmony that there wasn't any hint that they weren't right. Man, that's a far cry from where we are today. I mean, we can barely get through anything where other people are around without some kind of self-conscious discomfort. I mean, for instance, even in taking a seat in the auditorium, It's probably hard to get to your seat without any thought of, well, you know, am I sitting too close to people? Right? Am I, well, maybe I'm taking someone's seat. Maybe I'm too far up in the auditorium and I look just too spiritual. Don't want to do that. So, but if I'm too far back, I'm not spiritual enough. Right? If someone's right in front of me, well, they're, they're going to hear me sing. They're going to hear my voice. And then probably an endless myriad of other similar concerns that are just so petty and it's just so self-conscious. Why? Right? Why can't we have peace? It's because of the conflict with God and that brought the conflict within our own souls. 
The heat and the intensity of the conflict within our own souls is only an indication of the heat and the intensity of our conflict and war with God. Now, the conflict also brought about the conflict with creation. When God cursed mankind in Genesis 3, he also cursed creation. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you will bring forth children. Then to Adam, he said, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. Isaiah 1.7 says that your land is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your fields, strangers are devouring them in your presence. It's desolation as overthrown by strangers. So not only is their internal peace destroyed, but their peace with creation was destroyed. Then not only that, but then, of course, the peace that they had with each other, right? Sin brought conflict with each other. And as soon as sin entered the world, they began fighting each other. God asked Adam, did you eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden of which I commanded you not to eat? Which, according to Genesis 2.17, carried the death penalty, That's what God told Adam. If you eat of that tree, you die. And in response to God asking if Adam ate of the tree, he says, well, the woman you gave me, she gave me the fruit. Now, perhaps a good way to think of that is is he's basically saying, hey, it's her fault, so if someone's going to die, kill her. Right? I mean, I think we understand what blame shifting is. But Adam offers up his wife to die without hesitating. I hope we don't let the familiarity of Genesis 3 cause us to to miss how quickly and utterly destroyed the peace they had between themselves was broken when they sinned against God. As soon as they sinned against God, they're ready to offer each other up to death. So conflict with God brings conflict with each other. Isaiah 59 says, their works are works of iniquity, and an act of violence is in their hands. Their feet run to evil. They hasten to shed blood, innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Devastation and destruction are in their highways. They do not know the way of peace. There is no justice in their tracks. They have made their paths crooked. Whoever treads on them does not know peace. I I mean, how familiar is conflict to us? I mean, those are strong words in Isaiah 59. I think we want to distance ourselves from those words, but I mean, how early is that kind of iniquity seen in our lives? At two years old, you can see the the hands of violence with a two-year-old running to destroy the Lego tower of the siblings or just to shove a child off of a chair, not because they want to sit there, but because they want to shove them. Man, how quickly do we run Right, metaphorically, run to evil. I mean, so often our electronic devices digitally at warp speed with faster and faster megabytes per second take us to sexual immorality. They take us to gossip and delighting in destruction, the downfall of others. Or maybe it's just joining in the slander and anger and spewing venom on others online. Why is the path of war and evil and conflict so familiar to us? It's because our iniquities have put us at war with God. All of this conflict comes from our conflict with God. Now, the answer to all of this conflict, it rests in being able to somehow make peace with God. And the good news is that God actually invites us to trust in the Prince of Peace 
who actually makes peace for you. Now, everything we've talked about up to this point, like it's pretty much bad news. <laughs> now, maybe thinking about what peace is, you go, well, that, that's kind of encouraging to think about. But what makes thinking about peace so terrible is the fact that we don't have it. Right? The reason we don't have it is because we're at war with God and it's because of our sin against our Creator. But there is good news. Right? There is Isaiah 9-2 where there is light that shines into the darkness, shines into the darkness of this conflict-ridden, chaotic world. There's a light that actually shines into the dark, chaotic, conflict-ridden soul within us. But that light comes through looking and trusting in the Prince of Peace who makes peace for you. And really where that starts is by admitting that you cannot do anything to fix the brokenness yourself. Isaiah 48.22 says, there is no peace for the wicked, says the Lord. Okay, now that's a promise of God. Those aren't necessarily the promises of God we like to think about all that often, but there is no peace for the wicked, and that's actually repeated three times in the book of Isaiah. Now, wicked is a strong word, but our disobedience and our sin against God, it makes us wicked. So the answer of Isaiah is very, very clear. Can we achieve peace on our own? The answer is no. There is no peace for the wicked. It doesn't say, well, only the really wicked don't get peace. right? If we fall into whatever category we want to call it, the slightly wicked category, that still puts us in the wicked category, and there is no peace for the wicked. Think about this lament that God actually says in Isaiah 48, 18, if only you had paid attention to my commandments, then your well-being, that's the word for peace there, your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. I mean, this is why the Christmas story is so important. We didn't pay attention to his commandments. But there are consequences to our sin that, are, that we are absolutely powerless to solve on our own. Now, if there's nothing that we can do on our own, there is no peace for the wicked, then the interesting question, what are we to do? Well, that's the good news of the gospel. This is the amazing gift of Christmas, right? It's to really believe that Jesus is the Prince of Peace and, this is important, the suffering servant who came to make peace for sinners. Now, the connection between Jesus and the Prince of Peace is probably not as hard for you to see, but the connection between Jesus and the suffering servant, um, that, that one, we're going to, I'll connect that dot for you, but connecting these together is very, very important. So first, just the connection of Jesus as the prophesied Prince of Peace, it's made very clear in Luke um, where, where we're told, and suddenly there, were, there, appeared, uh, with, there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is well pleased. Well, why is that announcement coming at this point? Well, it's because the announcement is about the Savior being born, the Christ, the Lord who has been born, and that the sign to these shepherds was that they'd find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And then right after that announcement, that's where you get the angels praising God, saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he's well pleased. Peace on earth is part of the announcement of Christ's birth because that's the child of Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us a child is born, a son is given. 
right? This is the Prince of Peace. And so there's to be peace on earth because the Prince of Peace has been born. But what we've already seen this morning is that all of our conflict and our lack of peace, it comes from our conflict with God. Unless that conflict with God can be removed, then the promise of Isaiah 48.22 will stand for everyone, that there is no peace for the wicked. So how can our conflict with God actually be resolved? How can Jesus, the Prince of Peace, who's the rightful king to the throne of David, actually be good news for us? I mean, if you think about it this way, if you have all sorts of gang violence and drugs and so forth in your neighborhood, the police can come in and they can bring peace, but they bring peace by removing all the wicked people. The point being, right, if wicked people are removed, you can find peace, but if Jesus comes, the Prince of Peace, like the the peace might be coming by him removing all the wicked people, which is us. (laughs) That's not actually good news, Ever since Genesis 3, when sin entered the world, everybody is born into sin. And Paul makes this point so clear in Romans 3, where he says, both Jews and Greeks, all are under sin. That's saying everybody's under sin. As it is written, there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they become useless. There's none who does good. There's not even one. Their throats an open grave, their tongues they keep deceiving, the poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, destruction and misery in their past, the the path of peace they have not known, there is no fear of God before their eyes. I mean, that's talking about everybody. So how can Christ's birth bring the announcement of peace on earth? (laughs) That's where the connection of Jesus as the suffering servant becomes so very important. Isaiah prophesies about a suffering servant in the last part of the book of Isaiah. There are these various servant songs about this suffering servant that show up in Isaiah 40 to 53. They're somewhat mysterious because who this suffering servant is is unclear when Isaiah is preaching. But the New New Testament fills out who that servant is and why the suffering of this servant was so critical. In Matthew 8, 17, he says, this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. He himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. Jesus' ministry of healing the sick was part of the fulfillment of what Isaiah said about the suffering servant. Matthew quotes part of Isaiah 53, 4 here to show that his miracles were part of him fulfilling the prophecies about the suffering servant. And in Jesus healing the people's diseases, we see a clear connection between the suffering servant and then the prince of peace who ends the conflict, at least as we see here, between our bodies and nature. But the role of the Prince of Peace and the suffering, they are crucially linked together. Peter also sees Jesus as the fulfillment of the suffering servant. When he says, when he quotes Isaiah 53 in 1 Peter 2, where he says, And while being reviled, that being Jesus, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. 
for by his wounds you have been healed. Right? The wounds of Jesus obviously describe the crucifixion. Those wounds heal us, but they heal us from something so much deeper than just physical ailments. They heal our sins according to Isaiah and the prophecy that is mentioned in Isaiah 53. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and the chastening for our well-being, right, the chastening for our peace fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed." I mean, verse 4 seems to put it so lightly, saying that we esteemed him stricken and smitten of God and afflicted. I mean, maybe to try and make that more clear, I mean, think about Luke 19.42, where Jesus laments over the city just days before he's crucified. He says, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. I mean, basically what Jesus is saying is he came into the world as the Prince of Peace to offer terms of peace, and instead of terms of peace, we chose to kill him. We didn't want his peace. (laughs) We wanted him dead. Oh, and I, I pray that there are not amongst us here those that would still remain among the number that want Jesus dead that refuse his terms of peace. But ironically, as Isaiah 53 makes clear, it was through being pierced. It was through being crushed. It was through being chastened and being scourged that he made peace for us. Right? It's through his crucifixion that terms of peace were made for us. I mean, the Bible couldn't be more clear. Jesus didn't go to the cross for his sins. He didn't go to the cross for his iniquities. He went to the cross to bear our iniquities and to bear our sins. Later in Isaiah 53.10, Isaiah explicitly states that that suffering, that crucifixion, was the will of God. Right? The point is, that wasn't man's doing. Right? We didn't design or achieve that on human wisdom or power. Right? Isaiah 9-7 says right at the end, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Men, through their wickedness, rejected Jesus, the Prince of Peace, but it was actually through his suffering and death that peace was actually made for those that would confess their sin and rebellion against God and trust in Christ's substitutionary death on the cross. And so if Jesus, our Prince of Peace and our suffering servant, made peace for us through his death on the cross... Well, then what's left for us? Well, it really is to enjoy peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. You know, if you're here this morning and you've never acknowledged your sin, if you've never acknowledged your rebellion and war against God, you've never acknowledged that you're powerless to end that conflict with God on your own, then I want to plead with you to let the Word of God penetrate your heart and soul. And I pray that the words of Scripture would soften your heart and open your eyes to see that the only hope and answer to all the conflict and all the brokenness in, in this world, and especially the conflict in your own soul, it only is going to come through accepting Jesus' terms of peace through his substitutionary death on the cross. Romans 5.10 says, For if while we were enemies... 
We were reconciled to God through the death of his son. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. I mean, the point is, we were enemies of God. The Bible is so clear that our sin makes us an enemy of God. And the only way that that war ends is through trust in Jesus' substitutionary death on the cross. I mean, simply through placing your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, right, we actually get to experience what Romans 5.1 says, therefore having been justified, having been made righteous, no longer wicked, having been made righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, Christian friend, can I encourage you to rejoice in the gift of peace that the Prince of Peace has brought? I mean, you you know how easy it is to forget the preciousness of the gift of peace. (laughs) How easy it is to forget that you didn't accomplish this peace by anything that you did. How easy it is to forget that peace with God is the most important peace. (laughs) Don't get sucked into thinking that political peace is the main form of peace or the economic peace is the main kind of peace, or that peace with the climate, that that's really where peace comes from. I mean, peace will eventually come to all of that, (laughs) right? But for those that have made peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ, they'll get to experience all of that peace in due time. Isaiah 9-7 will be fulfilled, Right, we're rejoicing, we're praising God that Isaiah 9, 6, the child has been born, the long prophesied child has come. And we, we know Isaiah 9, 6 has come, but we are expectantly waiting for the fulfillment of 9, 7. Right, we are to expectantly, excitedly wait for it and tell others that this is coming if they will, off, if they will accept Christ's offer of peace that there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Man, I hope that we actually rejoice in that kind of peace and that that's what we would share with others and communicate with others as opposed to getting all excited and worked up about perhaps the little kind of peace that the world knows about. This is a peace that Jesus gives that's unlike the world. Let's pray. God, we thank you, Lord, that in your wisdom, Lord, you came, Lord, in the form of a child, or being born in human form, Lord, as you tell us in Philippians, Lord, that you, um, God, you, you became obedient or to even the point of death on the cross. God, your disciples didn't get it, your people didn't get it, or nobody understood what you were doing, or the Prince of Peace coming or to suffer so that we could actually have peace with God. God, we thank you that there is an answer to, to our sin, that there is an answer or to ending the conflict that we have with you. Lord, and it comes only through Jesus Christ. God, I do pray that you would help all of us here or to make sure that we have genuinely trusted in Jesus Christ and accepted, Lord, your terms of peace, which is through your substitutionary death. God, we thank you, Lord, that you would have loved us so much to do that. 
Lord, the fact that we declared war on you, the fact that we sinned against you, that we brought all this on, and yet you bear the consequences such that we can be made righteous and have peace with you. Lord, we praise you for the love that you have shown us. God, I do pray that as we go, go forth from here and we have family gatherings, or, Lord, I know many people would or be struggling, Lord, with health problems or the loss of a loved one, and Lord, they acutely feel that there is no peace with this nature, with this creation, where I pray that you would comfort them in the prophecy of Isaiah 9-7, that this increase of government and peace, Lord, it's coming for those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus. And so, Lord, we look forward to that. We praise you that you accomplished that for us. God, would you help us to go forth living in that peace and sharing that good news with others. God, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.